Welcome to Orphans No More, a media extension of Justice for Orphans, a ministry dedicated to rally the church for the cause of the fatherless, inspiring, educating, and equipping believers to care for vulnerable children, and supporting those who have heard and heeded the call of James 127. Here's your host, Sandra Flack. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That is Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Welcome to Orphans No More, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children in crisis through adoption, foster care, and kinship care. I am your host, Sandra Flack. I sound so much better and feel so much better, and I'm happy to report my health is back to normal. No more nasty COVID, good riddance. Uh, so uh, if you let, listen to the past couple of episodes, again, I didn't sound all that great. I felt better probably than I sounded, uh, but uh, the show must go on, as they say, and I, I did manage to get the last two episodes out, even not feeling very well. Um, but... I'm back in action now. Uh, So did you catch last week's episode with guest Debbie Osborne? We talked about the challenges of raising other people's children. Uh, That's what her book is about. Uh, So if you have adopted kids, if you foster or or are a kinship caregiver or a step parent even, you won't want to miss my conversation with Debbie. It was episode 307. Make sure you go back and and, uh, give that a listen if you didn't catch it. Uh, I have several more guest interviews lined up um, over the coming weeks, but today I want to return to our conversation about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder uh, and to the FASD 50 facts. Um, Throughout last year, I periodically shared an FASD fact or two on some of our episodes, kind of navigating through the 50. We left off on fact number 37, Um, so I'd like to pick up where we left off. Uh, You can find all of these 50 facts on FASD if you go to fafasd.org slash 50 facts. There's also a link on the JFO website uh, to uh, the 50 facts as well. So we didn't come up with these 50 facts. We got them from FAFASD. Uh, But I want to start with why I talk about FASD so much on this show. Orphans No More is not a podcast specifically about FASD. For a list of my favorite FASD-focused podcasts, check out the resource page. Again, it's at justicefororphansny.org. And there I, because I listen to several um, FASD-specific podcasts regularly because I am a mom of five adopted kids, two are diagnosed with FAS and two maybe should have been. Um, so I know how imperative it is for parents, for everyone really, to be FASD-informed. 
Uh, according to reports from an organization called Proof Alliance, that's another resource. Again, the link is on our website as well uh, to Proof Alliance. Uh, according to Proof Alliance, children with FASD are highly overrepresented in the child welfare system, including foster care. For example, in the state of Minnesota, 41% of children with an FASD are in foster care, and an additional 28% have been placed in adoptive homes. Now, Minnesota adoptive and foster parents have an advantage because their system is much more FASD informed than most other states. So at least caregivers in Minnesota have heard about FASD and have had some training on it before they even step into the role of foster parent. Um, but despite being overrepresented in the system, 86% of the children in child welfare have either been misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all when it comes to FASD. So it's vital for both professionals and families involved in child welfare to have appropriate training on FASD so they can better understand the effects of prenatal exposure to alcohol, seek a diagnosis as needed, and connect with FASD-informed supports and services. Um, let me tell you, we can't just, wherever, whatever state you live in or country you live in, we can't just assume that the special education teacher or the therapist or the um, doctor or pediatrician really have any idea what's going on. I just... Um, the lifelong pediatrician, I say lifelong, he was our pediatrician since my very first child was born uh, over 31 years ago. So my oldest, my oldest biological um, son is 31. Um, and so I, my pediatrician, he had just started as a pediatrician with the practice. So for 32 years of this pediatrician's career, he has been really an excellent pediatrician to all eight of my children. My kids love him. Um, even as they aged out and needed like real adult, you know, regular MDs and not just a pediatrician, my adult kids were like, they would have stayed forever with this doctor. They loved him so much. Um, but today, my two youngest boys, my, my 16 and 18 year old, um, both FAS, we had to see now a different doctor in that practice. So there's other doctors in the practice, but we've always seen the same one for well visits and anytime we could get in. Um, and so my boys had to see this, this doctor for the first time. And unfortunately, they switched my appointment and we didn't even see the doctor we were supposed to see, which was a, a, a man, um, which my teen boys would have preferred. But something happened and, and we ended up getting, they got the, 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 the female woman pediatrician, which they were really less than filled with, thrilled with. And I wasn't happy really because, you know, especially for those of you who know my son, know, have heard me talk about my son Slava, right? We need consistency, we need repetition, and we need to know way ahead of time when there's going to be a change. So he was already under some stress on the way to this doctor's appointment because he knew he wasn't going to get to see the doctor he'd always seen over the past 11 years. He was going to get to see this other doctor. But yet when we arrive, oh, well, we've switched his appointment. He's with this yet different doctor. So that was, you know, that was rough. He did okay with it. Um, but right there, there was, you know, they don't understand the needs of individuals with an FASD. 
And then, of course, trying to navigate both of my boys. They're in different rooms because, you know, they're teenagers and they don't really want mom in the room. But my younger son does kind of want mom in the room. And, you know, so I'm trying to. But this doctor was clueless about FAS. And I printed off um, actually a resource from, uh, I think I pulled it off of Proof Alliance, just a one pager about FASD to give to the new doctor so that they could have kind of a heads up because I already know they don't really know. They don't really know. They don't really understand. And, you know, this doctor was trying to chat with my son. Like she would ask him a question and he would actually look to me um, for help with the answer. And she was like, oh, don't you don't you don't need your mom to, to answer this question. You can talk directly to me because one day your mom won't be there. And, you know, you have to be able to answer these questions for yourself. And, you know, and a couple other things that she kind of said and did. And I was, well, that's part of his disability is he needs some help with understanding the question and processing the information and being able to answer that question. So um, anyway, interesting. So, but I already knew going in, you know, because I handed this doctor, I handed her the page about FASD, you know, and explained, you know, I've become an advocate and have had a lot of training on FASD. My two sons are both diagnosed, you know, which should be there in their records. And here you go. So, and oddly enough, it wasn't on their, you know, they use the computer now with all the records in it. And it wasn't, it didn't come up that they were diagnosed with FAS. And I said, well, it should have been because they were diagnosed, you know, like 10 years ago. So it should be on there. So she did add that. But, you know, whether she actually takes the time to kind of go do a little bit of research and figure out and understand what this is, um, you know, it's like, all these disconnected parts because my 18 year old who's had multiple surgeries because of um, from his scoliosis, he has other bone abnormalities and he's also got small stature. So she was trying to give him a lecture. I found out afterwards about his body mass index and his size and you know, eating healthy foods. And, and I was just like, afterwards, when he was telling me that I was like rolling my eyes, like, oh, good Lord. But um, anyway, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, a pediatrician that's practiced for 100 years, that does not mean they are FASD informed. So it is our role as we advocate for our kids to, to expect that even the professionals, even the doctors, don't necessarily know about FASD um, or, you know, they're not the expert on your kid. You are. And we need to advocate for them. So, you know, that was just one thing that happened today. And I'm sure maybe many of you can relate to that. Um, I know it's a, a the journey is challenging, especially when, you know, we don't really know or understand that our child may have a brain-based disability before, um, you know, I didn't really know anything about FAS until we adopted our kids. And I'm going to kind of get into that a little bit um, shortly. But when you don't really know what's going on, when you're not familiar what's going on or or haven't experienced this before, if, if your foster parent training classes did not teach anything about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, you got to teach yourself because it is a brain-based disability. And that's why I talk about it on this show and why Justice for Orphans offers resources and why I am in the process of becoming a a facilitator of the FACETS model. Uh, FACETS stands for Fetal Alcohol Consulting Education 
training services. Um, you can check them out at, online. Again, we have links on our on our website to facets. Um, but I I am in the process of taking a year long training with facets so that I can then teach this model and teach about FASD um, because we plan to expand the resources that Justice for Orphans offers in this area to include courses and trainings and support groups online and in person when we're allowed to do that again. Um, So stay tuned for all of that um, because really you know, as an adoptive parent, as a kinship parent with firsthand, you know, lived experience, I'm still living it. I know how hard it is. And I remember when I didn't know what I didn't know. um, And I still don't know everything that I need to know. But the more I've learned, the more I've come to understand how imperative it is that I know this. And that if you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are an adoptive or foster or kinship parent, or maybe a combination of the three, right? Um, You need to know this because you're not going to just get it in your training classes or whatever. You need to go after this training so that you understand it. So for now, I want to look at the FAFASD fact number 37, which says it's about myths. Myths about women who give birth to children with FASD prevent awareness, proper diagnosis and support for people with FASD. So the myth is that it's the women who give birth to the children with FASD who prevent the awareness, right? But If we believe that FASD only happens to others, like poor people or addicts, we will not see it as the major public health crisis that it is. Women who give birth to children with FASD are in every socioeconomic class and from every ethnicity. Some are addicts, but some are not. Half of all pregnancies are unplanned, and half of all childbearing women drink alcohol. So do the math. FASD impacts everyone. Okay, so that all of that information is listed with fact 37. And just to kind of break that down a little bit with some lived experience on my end, um, you know, as an adoptive mom of four internationally adopted kids, I never thought much about the stigma around FAS. Um, I knew by doing a little bit of research that FASD was very common in kids adopted from uh, Eastern Europe. So in my mind, that was what I linked to FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, to Eastern Europe, international adoptions. But over time, I've learned that FASD is a worldwide yet preventable disability including right here in the United States. And it's not just children of addicts. Now, one of my kids came to us through a kinship placement. She was a relative, an eight-year-old relative. Her mom had died of cancer. The biological dad was never really in the picture. I knew her mom. She was a relative of mine, like a third cousin. She was beautiful. She was a professional woman. She had a career. She was in her 30s, not married, but she was enjoying life. Now, due to some health issues, she was told she probably would never get pregnant. So when she discovered she was pregnant, she was thrilled, only she didn't realize she was expecting until several weeks into the pregnancy. 
So she was not an addict or an alcoholic, but she drank socially on the weekends. But folks, that's all it takes. Research shows that there is no safe amount, time, or type of alcohol to consume during a pregnancy. None. Social drinking has been linked to brain differences in children. Alcohol enters the baby's bloodstream without barriers. The developing baby cannot process and eliminate alcohol from his or her system. And since 50% of pregnancies are unplanned and half of all childbearing women drink alcohol, FASD is way more prevalent than we realize. Now, I don't believe any woman would intentionally drink alcohol to harm her unborn baby, but the vast majority of people, parents and professionals, are not FASD informed or educated. In fact, I think a lot of um, you know, uh, OBGYNs, you're not even going to get a clear answer on, you know, what trimester can I drink something in? You know, is it safe if I just have a glass of wine? And I, you know, I spoke with um, an FASD mom, uh, adoptive mom and professional. Um, I, we did an interview in, um, last summer and I learned that she has a relative who was had a high risk pregnancy and she was so stressed out because of the high risk pregnancy. She may, I think she maybe had miscarriages previously. So she was really nervous and stressed out and anxious during this pregnancy. So her obstetrician told her to have a glass of wine every night. The obstetrician told her to have a glass of wine every night to calm her nerves and to relax. Because, you know, all that stress isn't good for the unborn baby. Well, Now, the baby was born and the baby has, you know, I'm not sure how old the child is now, but, you know, the lady that I interviewed, um, you know, she pointed out that she can recognize symptoms of FASD in this child. Um, And it's not it's not diagnosed, but it's those kinds of things. So it doesn't have to just be kids from alcoholic families. You know, we probably all know somebody with an FASD. In fact, I believe the numbers are like one in 20 American kids have been prenatally exposed to alcohol. One in 20 American kids, not just kids in impoverished communities or kids with in the foster care system, one in 20 American kids. So we all know and our schools are filled with kids who've been prenatally exposed to alcohol. So now I share the story of my daughter's mom because we parented our daughter with traditional parenting style, just like we did our biological kids. She was eight years old when we she came. I've told the story um, numerous times on the show and I've written about it in my book. You know, we didn't know what we didn't know because of the way she came into our family. We had no, she wasn't in, um, you know, she wasn't in the system. So she came from her elderly grandmother to us. Um, had we not intervened, she probably would have ended up in foster care at some point. But we stepped in, but we had no training. There were no classes. The only thing we knew is what we did with our biological kids, which seemed to work. But with her, it never worked. There was always challenges. I mean, eventually we learned about trauma, but we didn't learn about even trauma and the impacts of childhood trauma on kids. We didn't learn about that until after we adopted, after our our daughter came when she was eight, 
probably about eight years later is when we adopted internationally. And after we had brought home all four of our internationally adopted kids, the youngest was so profoundly impacted by FAS, we were forced to deal with that. So we needed the training. We needed to learn. We learned about trauma. And I could relate to what I was learning about trauma would have been definitely valuable when we were parenting our daughter that came in through kinship. Um, and now, so many years later, where I've really gone you know, to school, so to speak, on FASD, uh, and I'm still trying to learn everything I can, um, I, she checks every box. She checks every box as someone who has been prenatally exposed to alcohol. Almost every primary characteristic of an FASD, along with some of the secondary characteristics, because we did not know about FASD. So we caused more harm at times than good. And when I put it together, what I know of our daughter's sweet mama and what I know now about FASD, I'm certain that our daughter has an FASD and she's she's now in her 30s, married and actually expecting her first baby. She had a rough go of it um, and really struggled, especially through her teens and her 20s. And that's really common with individuals with an FASD. Um, we're on the better side of it now. And, and as I connect with her and relate to her um, through the lens of understanding FASD and trauma, I am able to, you know, have a better, we have a better relationship with her. And, and she's matured in a lot of ways because that dismaturity is super hard also when they're going through their teens and 20s. But if you are an adoptive parent, no matter where your child was born, in another country, domestically, if you're a foster parent, or if you're raising a relative, you must become FASD informed. It's vital because it's so prevalent and it really is a game changer. Once you start looking through that lens of FASD, it's like you kind of see it everywhere, but it's because it really is almost everywhere. So I want to start by sharing some of the primary symptoms of FASD. Um, so if you haven't listened to this podcast before, or if you know, you're know you not sure if maybe the kids that you're parenting and raising may have an FASD, but it's also a good refresher because I feel like the more I can sort of cement these symptoms into my head, the more I am able to better advocate for my kid because I can I can see it and I'm able to communicate it and try to respectfully and humbly teach the professionals as well. So the primary symptoms of FASD, individuals exposed prenatally to alcohol, they often have challenges with the following, with Uh, Their developmental level of functioning is much younger than their biological age. We call it dismaturity. And so if you have a kid who's a certain age, but they act way younger, if they're emotionally younger, um, you know, they just seem to be so immature for their age, that's not you know, that's, they're not doing that on purpose or to annoy you or whatever. It's part of a brain-based disability. That's actually a uh, symptom of an FASD, as well as sensory processing, Uh, nutrition issues. I have a kid who is like addicted to sugar, 
sugar, sugar, sugar, sugar. And it, that this kid would rather drink sugary beverages than eat food. So um, nutrition issues, language and communication. Does your kid need speech therapy? Um, slow processing pace. They, you know, they don't understand everything. It takes them a while to respond. If you're asking them something and you get, I don't know, first, a lot of times that's not because they're being, you know, fresh. It's because they say that because they really need a couple minutes to process what you're asking and come up with an answer. Um, it's sort of like that, you know, space filler, that time, time filler. Uh, learning and memory. Memory is a huge thing. I've talked about that a lot. Uh, on the show before too, um, you know, if you, you know, give my son a list of, uh, in fact, his speech therapist was just doing this. He's he's getting speech right now online, um, remotely, and you know, the the speech therapist was giving him like a list of four things. Um, you know, she would read off a list of four things, and then um, they'd chat for a second, and then she'd want him to tell her what those four things were, and he would get one or two of them but he would never get all four of them. And now she's been working on different strategies on, you know, getting him to remember more than just one or two of them, you know, to put them in categories, to learn how to write things down. Or you can, if you have to go to the grocery store and get things, you can make a list, you can keep a list on your phone, all that kind of stuff. But memory, he's 16 years old and he can't remember, you know, a list of four simple things. Um, So, those are all, you know, learning, you know, learning challenges, learning disabilities, memory issues. Those are all classic symptoms. Abstract thinking problems such as time and money. Classic FASD. Um, and executive functioning issues like and that's your decision making decision where you're the decisions, you know, that higher reasoning part of the brain. All of those, all of that gets impacted. So those are the primary symptoms or characteristics of an FASD. The secondary symptoms of an individual with an FASD, and this is when they do not receive the supports, understanding, or accommodations that they need. Usually because when we are not FASD informed and we keep trying to like force a square peg into a round hole, right? Trying to keep getting them, you know, how how many times do I have to tell you that when you come home from school, you take your shoes off at the door and you hang your backpack up. And maybe you've told them that like a million times and they forget to do one, if not both of those things almost every single day. And it's driving you crazy and really pushing your buttons. Okay. Well, you're expecting a memory thing from a kid who doesn't have good memory capability. And they also don't have that higher reasoning, executive functioning. So to remember that and to be organized and to do those steps, you know, you can, it can become part of a routine, not that they can never do it, but if there's things that your kid is doing that's driving you crazy and pushing your buttons and you're, and you're saying things like, why would you do that? What would make you think that that's okay to do? You know, I've told you a million times and, you know, those kinds of things, it may not be that your kid is, is behaving badly on purpose or disobeying, right? It's not that they won't do these things. It could very well mean they can't do these things, not without at least lots of support and help. So when we're constantly trying to get them to do things that their brain actually cannot do, then we can start seeing secondary symptoms develop. 
They can be very easily fatigued, anxious, fearful. They can self-isolate, avoiding situations and avoiding people. They become very easily overwhelmed. They can become argumentative about things, uh, struggle with depression, have a lot of frustration and anger, have poor self-esteem, and have problems with family relationships and problems in school. So those are, you know, all of my kids that are FASD suspected or even diagnosed, some of those things on the secondary list I see in my kids because we didn't always know. And sometimes even when you do know, and you know, you're trying to address all of the primary symptoms, you know, we're not ever going to do everything perfect and not every other caregiver and not every school administrator or teacher, like not everybody knows and gets it. So more damage can get done. Um, So they can become very easily stressed out and anxious and depressed and really struggle, especially when they get into their teens and when they're a young adult. Those are the secondary symptoms. And over time, tertiary symptoms can occur if the individual with an FASD experiences chronic failure. And it is so common because life is so hard and they seem to, you know, it just seems like they make mistakes and make poor decisions and bad choices all the time. And they can end up, um, you know, with these tertiary symptoms, which are actually preventable when the primary symptoms are addressed. And especially if it gets to the secondary symptoms, if, if you're really intervening there, then you know, when well addressed and supported, our kids, you know, with with the with the right accommodations, our kids can be successful. But if they're chronically not supported and experience chronic failure, um, it can lead to involvement in the criminal justice system. There's a very high rate of individuals in the criminal justice system who have been prenatally exposed to alcohol, uh, and that's because. A lot of times also another tertiary symptom, alcohol and drug usage and addiction. These kids are very susceptible to addiction. Uh, Involvement with social services, involvement with the legal system, and even, unfortunately, suicide. So we need to intervene. We're our kids' advocate. We need to be FASD-informed in order to better support them and help them to advocate for themselves and speak up for themselves and say, you know, this is this is something, you know, I try to give my son voice today because he was so stressed out about going for an annual physical because, um, you know, there's certain parts of the physical he finds to be weird and even gross. And now, you know, he's 16. There's dismaturity there. But I was able to finally, like, in the car ride there, okay, you know, you are feeling nervous and anxious because, you know, the physical is embarrassing. I get a physical every year and it is very embarrassing. It's okay to feel embarrassed. And if you really don't want the doctor to perform all of the physical, you can say, I don't, I don't want, I don't want that part. Now, my 18 year old, he basically didn't even take off his work boots. He told this doctor, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not changing my clothes. You know, he's like drew the line. She didn't like it. Our other pediatrician allowed that for his last physical last year. They did all the basic stuff, but he was not putting on a hospital gown 
or, you know, he was not submitting himself to, you know, that kind of a, a deep probe, if you know what I mean. So, you know, but I said to Slava, and especially when we ended up with the, 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 the female doctor, I said, you know, I can step out of the room if you feel, you know, embarrassed or awkward, but... Or I could turn my back if you don't want me to leave. But you do have a right to say no to this. But he actually was talking to her about why do you have to do this? So she explained it. He submitted to it. I stayed in the room and turned my back because the doctor actually said she's not allowed to be in the room alone for that part of the exam, you know, for safety reasons. So, you know, but I wanted my son to understand, yes, you're feeling embarrassed and you can actually say no to this exam. Like, it's okay. But uh, he needed to be taught that. He wouldn't know to even do that. And he's 16. So we need to advocate. We need to help them have a voice for themselves and say, you know, like like when I when I my older son got to the appointment first and now he's 18. So this is his first doctor's appointment since he's turned 18. So now he's of age and I'm not even allowed in the room. Right. So um, I explained to him before because he met us there. He came from work. And I said, if you get there before I do, you can let them know um, that you want to sign the HIPAA thing, giving um, you know me permission to talk with the doctor. Because if you don't, I'm not even allowed to talk to her. Now, he went in and didn't say anything about that and was already in the exam room with this doctor before I even you know made it through the door. So I got, you know, I got as far as the door to his exam room and she opened it up and wasn't going to let me in. And then, you know, I explained briefly the situation. He did give permission for her to talk to me. And then he went out to the front desk and did the HIPAA thing that he needed to do. But, um, you know, I, he he's not going to like one of the complaints he's been having because of his bone abnormalities is he's been having a lot of neck pain. He's had physical therapy a few years ago. It didn't really do anything. He's had multiple spinal surgeries, but he's having some issues with his neck. So that was something he'd been complaining about a month ago. And I said, well, we're making an appointment for your physical. Let's start there. And then from there, we can figure out if we're going to see another orthopedic surgeon or, you know, who we're going to see. So that was like his big thing. He was complaining and griping one day. And, um, you know, I said, well, that's something we're going to talk about when we go to the doctor. Well, of course, you know, the, the visit was basically completely over and he never mentioned to her anything about his neck. So when I, by the time I got to the door to talk, I, you know, I said, well, I have a list of things that I want to make sure that you're talking to him about. I threw him under the bus about the vaping which he had told her when she asked if he smoked or vaped, he said no. And I said, well, that's not exactly true. He said, well, I'm not doing it now. And I'm like, okay, you're not doing it now, but you've said that before. And, you know, I just wanted the doctor to reiterate the dangers of it to him, which, you know, obviously went right in one ear, not the other, because he had way tuned out this doctor the whole entire time, you know, because he wasn't taking off his work boots kind of thing. So, um, you know, I talked about his diet a little bit because I'm very concerned about his, you know, he doesn't just consume sugar like the ordinary teenager. It's it's excessive amounts of sugar. Uh, and then I wanted to talk about the neck. And he didn't bring up any of those things with the doctor. So he does need some some guidance in these things still. So mom still sort of needs to show up because he also wasn't listening to anything she was saying. So you know, it's, it's that fine line, but we have to teach our kids to be able to advocate for themselves. But when they have a brain-based disability, they may need a support person in those visits, no matter how old they are. 
you know, or at least a support person to be able to have a conversation with the doctor, um, you know, about these things. But again, it's a battle because even pediatricians and other doctors and specialists may know little to nothing about FASD. And that's why we have to be informed. So if the list of symptoms that I just read off sound all too familiar to you, you know, did it sound like I was just describing your child or children, then you need to become FASD informed, educated and equipped with parenting tools for children with brain-based disabilities. Um, you know, like like the FACETS behavioral model, that's the, the neurobehavioral model, that's the training that I'm getting, it's for parents, it's prefer, for also per, for professionals. I did a six-week training, which you can go on and do, and I would highly, highly, highly recommend that. You can go to facets.org, F-A-S-C-E-T-S.org. There'll be links in the show notes. You can take their training. They're offering them online through Zoom throughout the year. It's a six-week, once-a-week training. Um, It's invaluable. I would highly recommend it. I'm then from there going on. I I took that already um, in another course with them, and now I'm going to be taking um, their kind of train the trainer, so to speak, so I can become a facilitator to teach the model, um, to teach about FASD and how to parent um, these kids with this brain, you know, with neurodiversity. So um, it, it's very important. There's there's a list, uh, Facets is on our website. For a list of my favorite resources, not just Facets, but the podcast that I recommend and that I listen to, books that I have read and recommended, recommend, and other websites like Facets, visit our resource page at justicefororphansny.org and stay tuned to this podcast because as I process through the course and becoming a facilitator of the facets model, um, I'm doing that so I can become a better parent, but also to help guide you along your parenting journey too. Um, As Nehemiah said, I opened with Nehemiah because it just so resonated with me this week. Um, In those opening verses when I read, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. We have to fight for our kids. We have to remember the Lord. And if you're listening to this podcast and you feel like, I needed to know this. You know what? I I pray before I record every episode and I want to glorify God and I want to offer our listeners something. I want you guys to listen and feel encouraged and supported and equipped and not alone on this journey. And I always ask the Lord to bring it to the ears of those who need to hear it. So if you're listening to this, it's not by chance. It's because the Lord knows you need to hear it. Remember the Lord. He is great. He is awesome. He will equip you and provide you with everything that you need to fight for and to advocate for and to be able to successfully parent your children. So thank you for listening. I hope you were encouraged. Be sure to let me know that you are listening by subscribing to Orphans No More and also by reaching out to me. I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com. You can also contact me through our website, justicefororphansny.org. And you can check out my family's adoption story in my book, 
Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It's available wherever you buy books. Um, If you would like a signed copy, uh, which includes a special bookmark, uh, a gift bookmark, I'll pop in there. I'll sign it and pop it right in the mail to you myself. You can order that directly from my website at uh, sandraflack.com. That website is connected to the Justice for Orphans website. So either way, you can find all of this stuff. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to our Care Portal County sponsors. Justice for Orphans is an implementer of Care Portal in the capital region of upstate New York. And we've got some sponsors that help us do what we do. Um, Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Bowdry Construction, and National Bank of Coxsackie, these businesses care about children and families in crisis. They support this organization and help us to be able to do what we do. So big shout out to them. Don't forget justicefororphansny.org for those resources about FASD. Um, Check out sandraflock.com for my regular blog posts, which are really dedicated to you guys, the foster adoptive and kinship caregivers um, that that listen. Uh, And be sure to find and follow me on social media. I am on both Facebook and Instagram as Sandra Flack. Um, And Justice for Orphans has both a Facebook and Instagram page as well. So let's stay connected, shall we? Thank you again for listening. I am so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to Orphans No More, for sharing what you've heard and praying for vulnerable children everywhere. We hope you are inspired to walk out James 127 in whatever way God calls you. For more information, visit justicefororphansny.org.